Amen. Thank you, Brother Wayne. We started our Hebrews series last week, finding this book was written to a group of Jews who converted to, converted to Christianity. They had all their lives been waiting for the Messiah to come, and then they believed. This Jesus who came along, he actually was Messiah, and so they started following him. But they, they thought that believing in their Messiah was the culmination of something, that things were coming to completion, and then things start hitting them. Hard times, hard temptations, hard teachings. We're going to continue coming back to those three things throughout the study. They come into trial or temptation, or they heard some new teaching from apostles and in Jesus's, uh, in Jesus's preachers, and start to struggle. And so this writer, whoever it is, reaches out to those Christians who are trying to follow Jesus, but are having trouble because of these struggles, and he has this call. Stick with Jesus. He's magnificent. Last week he saw he's the radiance of God the Father. He's the imprint, the very imprint of God. Stick with this Jesus. Over and over again in this book, this writer's going to admit to us, things are hard, aren't they? You're in some real trouble. Okay, well, look to Jesus. Look, look on him and, and hold, hold tightly to him. And by extension, that's the same message to us through this book. When you run into hard times and hard temptations and hard teachings, look to Jesus, hold to him. Why? Because of the theme of the book. Because he's better. Whatever pleasure you think you're going to get, whatever satisfaction you think you're going to get, whatever you think your hard or your hard work is going to get you, whatever that is, Jesus is better than all of it. He's greater than all of it, so hold to Him. So that's where we started last week, which brings us to chapter 2 and verse 5. Before we start, I just want to tell you a quick, very quick story, two or three minutes on this. I would imagine in this room, J.R.R. Tolkien is fairly familiar with most of you. If you don't know, he's the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings books, The Hobbit, Cimmerillion, other brilliant works of fiction. And the scholars who study Tolkien, they think, and have argued, I think successfully, that this thing we're about to read, verses 5 through 18, is the inspiration Tolkien had for writing one of his most seminal monologues written in the books. So let me give you that story, very short. There's a guy named Boromir at the beginning of the story. He thinks he's going to be king. He is, thinks he's got the right to be the next king of a place called Minas Tirith. And then he finds through the course of the story, there's another guy. His name's Aragorn. And Aragorn has the right bloodline. It should be him that's king. And so Boromir, of course, not a big fan of Aragorn because he thinks this guy is taking his spot. And then through the, the battles of the book and the work that they have to do together, even though he kind of uh, Boromir resents Aragorn as they work together, Aragorn, through the work that he does, just proves himself. And at the end of Boromir's life, the, the last scene of the first movie, it's 20 years now, so this is not a spoiler alert. You should have seen it by now. The, the last scene, Boromir is fatally wounded, and Boromir grabs onto Aragorn on the ground, and he says to Aragorn, I would have followed you, my king, my captain, my brother. And then he dies. Those three things, those three categories, brother, captain, king, that's what we're going to see in Jesus today. That he's a better brother, a better captain, and a better, we're going to use the word founder, and a better king. That Lord of the Rings analogy is really good for us too. Like Boromir, we all think we should be king. We should sit on the throne of our, our own hearts, our own lives, and make our own ways. But there's one who's better, who has a right to sit on the throne. And I think we're going to lift him up today to even call you, get off the throne. And let put, put, Jesus, put Jesus there in his rightful spot. I'm just going to give you a preview of the flow of thought. I want to try to do this every week so that you're never lost. Here's what we're going to do before we even do it. 
Here's the argument. Your, your writer's going to say, God made humans to have dominion. God made humans to rule with him. God was actually going to you to rule this earth through humanity. But if you guys looked around, it doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like humans have much control at, hard, at all. Life is hard. It's unpredictable. It seems out of control. And so if we were supposed to rule, and it doesn't seem like we're ruling, well, where do we turn? He's going to point us to Jesus, the better king, the better founder, the better brother, and that through him, the ruling that God intended for us can happen. When we recognize Jesus is the better king, better founder, better brother, we will meet the hard challenges of our, to- our hard times, our hard temptations, and our teachings. Hard teachings. Let's get started. We're going to read verses 5 through 8 once again. Verse 5, <coughs> For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Excuse me, of which we are speaking. It has been testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, humanity, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned humanity with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under humankind's feet. The writer here is quoting Psalm 8. Your Bible actually might put some quotes around that so that you know the writer's referring to something else in Scripture. And get this for one more connection. Psalm 8 is a reflection on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So if someone was reading Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and was very inspired by it and went and wrote Psalm 8, and now Hebrews is referring to that psalm. So we really have to go back to Genesis as we often do in Bible reading. The Bible just keeps taking us back to Genesis. We have to know what he's referring to. So when the writer of Psalm 8 was, was thinking about Genesis, he was thinking this. Genesis tells me who I am tells me my value, my, the image of God is on me. It tells me my role and what I'm supposed to be doing here. It tells us that we in God's image are here to cultivate and care for and manage and nurture and take dominion over everything around us. That is the ideal. So before we get into the objection that you know, but Corey, the ideal is not happening. Before we deal with that, Let's just park on the ideal for a minute that Psalm 8 was reflecting on. You did make humanity to take dominion over everything. Hear that challenge that if we're going to do that, that's a project for all of us. We need you all involved. If we're really going to take dominion, as Genesis says, over everything the Lord has made, that is not a project for preachers. That's not just a project for professionals who work in the churches. This means the entire church needs to get to work if we're going to cultivate everything that the Lord has made. A couple examples here, because especially young people, I want to call you up into this idea of cultivating and, and taking dominion over what the Lord has made. This week I was so excited to hear that it looks like we have a, uh, some of our pharmaceutical companies has a really workable Alzheimer's drug. What an incredible blessing that would be. If we take dominion, even unbelievers now, taking dominion over the the elements of the world to treat Alzheimer's, that'd be incredible. And at the same time, there was a a longing in me, some kind of sadness in me, recognizing, and that used to be where the Christians lived. If you look back through history, our great inventors and our great scientists and discoverers, it was just Christians everywhere. It's very rare that you find a major scientific figure in history that was not a believer, and that they're that those figures, their stated purpose was, the Lord made everything, so we should understand it. The Lord made everything, so we should cultivate it. And man, right now, that, that world is almost devoid of Christian influence. Young people in here, if you got that, you have the aptitude 
you have that ability? Can I call you into the sciences this morning? That's the Lord made stuff and we need you there when you're when you're ready to go out into the into that world. Let's go continue to solve diseases and solve the problems of the world through the things the Lord has has made. Let's take dominion in that world. And we're going to need you, especially young folks who are coming up. We need you in philosophy. We need you in the universities making new thought. We need you in governance. You know, we, we live in a time where there's a lot of a lot of talk about the concept of human rights. You know, that's a uniquely Christian thing. No one talked about it until the Christians came along and said, every human you see is made in the image of God. So there are human rights. That's a concept that usually gets, gets used by unchristian people, and they have no grounds for it. Why, why are you even arguing? What, what do you think about humans that they should have rights? I know I do, because they're made in the image of God. And we're going to need you. If we're going to take dominion in the ideal world, man, we're going to need you out there to go into those worlds and speak a biblical truth on humans. Young people, even people in this room that are not as young, if you've got business acumen, we need you in the boardroom. If you think you could be used in the legal world, we need you in the courtroom. If you think in the education system that we have now that you're good at cultivating minds, we need you in the classroom. We need you everywhere cultivating and taking dominion for the Lord's ways that lead to human flourishing would be given to a world that needs it. We need you in architecture, in design. We need you in technology. We need you in music and arts. We need you everywhere. And so, even parents, can I call you to that, that we're not calling our kids to an American dream. We're calling our kids, we're calling the next generation to Psalm 8's ideal. Go out with biblical thinking into every part of the world, the culture, the economy, and cultivate it as God's good creation. Now, that's the ideal. The writer immediately knows. You have an objection to the ideal. You look around the world and you're hearing, hold on a second, I'm supposed to be, we as humans, we're supposed to be on top of the world, but really the world feels like it's on top of us, it's crushing us. I don't see what you're seeing there, Psalmist and Psalm 8. I feel the opposite. Well, he concedes that. He concedes that in the rest here in the rest of verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to humans, God left nothing outside of human control. Here's a key phrase. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to humanity. Well, that's quite the understatement, is it? Natural disasters, wars, viruses, corrupt governments, mass shootings, poverty, broken families, racial prejudices, sickness, physical ailments, and more. You can feel the depths of us not having things under subjection to us. And I think maybe these original readers felt it even more. In the beginning there of Psalm 8 reflects on a good world, Genesis 1 and 2, that God made. And then it reflects on Genesis 3, where everything breaks and we don't have things under subjection. That, that incongruity, that feelings of, of things not matching, what we were made for, and then living in a broken world, that has troubled human hearts for ages. The believer and the unbeliever alike struggle with that question. What is wrong with this place? We can feel it deep. Something's not right. We weren't made for this. And that's correct. We weren't made for how things are going. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is we know what went wrong. We know it was sin. We know how to, how to address it. It's, it's the gospel. It's, it's, it's following God's ways. Human history, though, tells us the very sad story of other thought processes, other philosophies trying to address the Psalm 8 problem. 
This major Psalm 8 problem of knowing we were made to have things in subjection to us, but it's not there. It's just been sad story after sad story of trying to find other ways besides God's way to make those two things match. I'll give you just one from my lifetime. Something that occurred to me now as I'm getting a little older, not, not old, but getting a little older. I remember in the 90s, early 2000s, there was a really ascendant movement called the New Atheists. More people in the Western world were calling themselves atheists than ever. Richard Dawkins had published The God Delusion. It was the number one New York Times bestseller. I think it was 40-something weeks. It was number one. Sam Harris had one of the biggest YouTube channels you could, you could imagine. He was another, another atheist figure. And even around here, when I started driving, I recall vividly, I have a good memory, you guys remember the Jesus fish? It was everywhere back in the, the 90s and 2000s. I remember th that group had started making the Jesus fish, and they, they took that fish, they put two legs on it, and they put two feet on the legs, and then they wrote the word Darwin in the fish. That was a fundamentally negative movement. It didn't offer anything new, offer any solutions. It just said, we don't like the Christian way. We know that's not the way to fix the Psalm 8 problem. And then this occurred to me in my adult life. When was the last time you saw one of those Darwin stickers? I haven't seen one. It's probably a decade. I looked at Richard Dawkins' feed. He still tries. He still produces a lot. He has less than like less than a hundred thousand people watching what he's doing. Sam Harris is a pretty big podcast, but it's not nearly as big as say some some Christian preachers have. They took a shot at it, I guess, and then it just fell apart because that worldview, this worldview of trying to address the Psalm 8 problem, their answer to a humanity that wants an answer was, well, guys, you're asking for too much. You're sacks of chemicals floating through space. You're not even sad when you feel sad. It's just a chemical reaction. You're not even longing for anything. It's just a chemical reaction in your brain. We're just sacks of chemicals in space. And an unbelieving world looked at the New Atheist Movement and said, no, I don't think that's it. I don't think you guys have quite it right. I know something's wrong. I know that we were made for something different than we are, but I don't think you guys have it. And then even that unbelieving world just looked for other stuff, other ways to solve the Psalm 8 problem. And so they went on projects of social justice and environmentalism and government reform and some patriotic movements, I think, fit into this category of trying to solve a Psalm 8 problem in an unbiblical way. You ever wonder why all those things, those, that category of things, all the activisms, why they feel so intense, why it feels there's so much fervor there? It's because they're trying to answer spiritual and theological problems with physical and practical and political answers. There's an unbelieving world out there, and some believers who have been lied to by our enemy and brought into this they think they're fighting practical battles, and they don't know that there's a religious reality underneath. There's a spiritual reality underneath. And so that fervency, sometimes it surprises me how angry everybody is all the time when I look out in the world. But it shouldn't surprise me because they're actually having a religious war, and they don't even know it. There are irreligious people on one side and irreligious people on another side. They don't follow Jesus, and they are fighting each other over their religions and making each other miserable. They're false religions. The enemy of our soul is the enemy of the unbeliever's soul, and it's calling them the false religions to fix the Psalm 8 problem. And here we sit with the actual answer. So here we are in the, the, the depths of the problem. He gives us 
Okay, Psalm 8. You guys are supposed to have dominion taking cultivation over the, the culture and all, everything God has made. But it's really obvious that's not happened. The world is broken and people are trying all kinds of ways to fix the Psalm 8 problem. So, what can the author of Hebrews actually offer us for this very big problem? Well, he offers all he's got and he offers all we need. He offers Jesus. Verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Amen. We'll stop there for a moment. Hope you caught the parallelism. In Psalm 8, the writer says, God made us humans a little lower than the angels, and now... The writer of Hebrews says, well, he made somebody else a little lower than the angels for a little time. He made Jesus a little lower than the angels for a little while. And it went very differently for him. It's actually an opportunity here. We get to celebrate Christmas in July today because this is celebrating the incarnation, the coming of Jesus. By the way, it's 169 days. 169, 169 days till Christmas for those that want to get started. But we are celebrating Christmas this morning. That's what this is. Jesus put on a body. And when he did... This is what the psalm, this is what the Hebrews writer says. He was crowned with glory and honor because of suffering death. That is a category we struggle with if we haven't been properly taught. But we came through the Gospel of Mark and we were able to see his suffering and death was the thing that crowned him. If I can remind you, it was on, if it wasn't Easter, it was one of the weeks right before Easter, we saw Jesus' crucifixion was. The soldiers, not knowing they were doing it, were in a bizarro world, backward world, were doing all the things you do to a king before crowning him. And then they put him on the cross, and it was like a cosmic enthronement. They put him on his throne, but his throne was a cross where he was doing his kingly work, and he was defeating death and defeating sin on the cross. We have a category for that, that it was through the suffering of death that he was doing his most kingly work. So... We know what the Hebrews writer is doing here. He wants our minds there. Jesus is a king, some kind of better, better king than the ones that we've had. And then in a very real way, because of the parallelism, for a while we were made lower than the angels, and then for a while Jesus was made lower than the angels. But death and suffering conquer us. But he conquers death and suffering through, through taking on death and suffering and defeating them. That's Psalm 8, the, the taking dominion and and putting everything under our feet, it all happens through Jesus. He does it. Now, he does not do it again uh, without using you. He's so kind to invite us along in the project of bringing the kingdom of God that through Jesus, using you, we might see all things brought in subjection under King Jesus. He has come to close the gap that Psalm 8 gives us. He's come as a king to close the gap between what is in what should be and what eventually will be. So take that first vision here. Jesus as a king. Next we'll see Jesus as a founder. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I love that we sang that new song today. Even just a minute ago, it occurs to me, uh, I was talking about Jesus ruling through his suffering, ruling through death. That was in that song that the lamb slain on the cross was, was ruling. And we sang that line today, bringing many sons to glory. We sing that in another song here, uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. 
you ever wonder where that line comes from, it's here. He brings many sons to glory, and it's, it's fitting that he did that through suffering. I think you might have already made that connection. It's, it's fitting that he did it through suffering because suffering is what did us in. Sin and suffering is what defeated us, but going through the suffering and absorbing it and defeating himself, it's fitting that's how he brings us to glory. And then he calls Jesus here the founder of their salvation. This word, depending on what Bible you're reading, it has been translated captain, author, pioneer. I could name about six or seven other ways this was translated. I like that the ESV translators chose founder. I landed there because I know what's coming. Chapter 3 starts with a comparison to Moses. Moses being the founder of God's people. He brings God's people out of Egypt into the wilderness. Eventually, they get to go to the promised land. Moses is a founding father of a people. And I think the writer is already thinking about Moses as a picture, comparing Jesus to him. That, yes, he's a found, Moses was a founding father of Israel, and that's awesome. A founding father of God's people. That's nothing compared to what Jesus does. Jesus is the founding father of a whole other people. Not just a people brought out of Egypt into a kingdom with some borders. He's, he is bringing a kingdom out of sin and death for every tribe, tongue, and nation. An eternal kingdom, not just an earthly kingdom that Moses had, that he didn't even really get to see into fruition. Moses was great as a founding father, but man, this Jesus, a much better founder, he's made a brand new place, a brand new country, a brand new people. I, so, sometimes in reading the Bible, I, I notice our Western world. We grow up thinking very linearly. But some of your Bible writers, they don't write linearly. They dart around because that's how Eastern literature works. I think this is one of those times that reading a little out of order is going to help us. So let's do that in verse 14 and 15. Continuing this thought, Jesus wins through his suffering, wins through his death. He's a founder of new people. We'll go verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Let's pause there for a moment. He partook of the same things. We're going to highlight that a little bit more later. It's a sweet phrase to think about, that Jesus partook of all the things we partake in. But for right now, the writer is zeroed in on Jesus' big victory over death, his big victory over sin. That He's giving us this reality that Jesus is able to create a new people, be the founding father of a new people, because he took on death to destroy it. Destroy it for us. Winning for us a lot, but he highlights here winning for us something in particular. He won for us deliverance from what he calls lifelong slavery through fear of death. He talks about here a very dramatic phrasing that the human heart, if it doesn't find some relief, will fear death, fear dying, to the point of being enslaved to it. I won't belabor this point. I don't like thinking about death more than probably any of you do, but there's, there's something in the text here, so we have to, have to tackle it. it. It occurs to me, in a lot of the hymns we sing, that final stanza is often about death. The hymn writers, just like this passage, is calling you from time to time to think about your own, own mortality. It strikes me quite hard sometimes. Like last week, we sang 
can't remember the name of the hymn, but the line is, uh, when the death dew lies cold on my brow, and that is a vivid picture of a hymn writer asking you to think about your own mortality. And I don't want to call you to think about it more than what the text does, but the text is trying to get you to think about it for a second. In antiquity, even go 100 years ago, the philosophers that we had, this was actually a very common topic. Philosophers talked about death a lot. Here's the reason we don't think about it a lot. It's called your iPhone. We have distracted ourselves like crazy from having to think about anything hard. If you, I'm talking, guys, I'm not even, I, I went too far like 100 years ago. Maybe 80 years ago, 60 years ago, a very common topic in literature classes and philosophy courses was the fact that for millennia, all the smart people have been talking about death and what it means. And then we came along to an overstimulated, over-entertained people group that we don't think about it for a second. Never going to occur to us. But we need to just for a second. Because there are, there are lots of approaches non-Christian thinking has had to death. I think two of them are ascendant in our day. So I want to give you just two approaches to thinking about dying that the world has given us and then show you that we have a better answer. We have such a, a much better answer than the world thinks about death because what the scripture here says is if we don't deal with it, we're in lifelong slavery to it. Lifelong slavery to having to stress about, think about death. Two ways that the non-Christian world approaches death. One, death makes life meaningless, so enjoy it. They're called the hedonists. Their philosophy is because this life is all there is, you better go get every sensation and every pleasure and every experience you could possibly get. Pile on yourself pleasures because this life means nothing. Conversely, there's another group called the existentialists. They say death makes life meaningless. They agree with the hedonists. Death makes life meaningless. So dread it. Why would you do anything? We're all going to die anyway. What's it all matter? The two philosophies of the, of the world have been go get everything, drench this life, bring it out, get all you can because we're all going to die. And the other ones say, we're all going to die, so why would you do anything? And we can answer both. Because of what Jesus did, we have answers to both of those philosophies. Because death isn't the end. You don't have to spend all your time chasing pleasure. You don't have to spend all your time in your own head dreading it because we are eternal beings. Everyone you know, hold on, hear this. Everyone you know, either in eternal bliss or eternal torment, will be around one trillion years from now and a trillion years after that and a trillion years after that for eternity. It's not that death makes life meaningless, so either enjoy it or dread it. It's, death does not make life meaningless. We are eternal beings, so literally everyone you interact with matters. Everything we do and think and say, it all matters. We are around for eternity. And because we know that, because we know we are eternal, I'm not in lifelong slavery to death. I'm, I, I know I'm going to be reunited with everyone that I've lost. To the, to the core of my bones, I know that. That when we sing, that we will be in the resurrection, singing with all the saints from the past. <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, my, my mind could go there, very vivid imagination. And that's going to be a blast. We don't have to be in lifelong slavery to death. There is an entire world out there that is. They've distracted themselves from it. They're not thinking about it because they can just scroll till they die. Man, when it comes up, we got a good answer. Thus far, 
We've seen Jesus is this better king who's going to accomplish Psalm 8. He's the better founder. He gives us a new world. And in part, winning that new world through defeating death gives us freedom from the power of death by defeating who owns it, Satan. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why Jesus, he, is not ashamed to call them, that's us, to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This doesn't hit us quite as hard as I think the original reader does for this reason. In old cultures, in antiquity, and even right now, if you pick up a lot of Latin American cultures, and a lot of this in small town Italy, Spain, Sicily, that part of the world, Family just means everything. Family is, we actually watched a movie last night where it was about a, a couple from, a guy from Sicily who said, family isn't, uh, isn't an important thing, it's the only thing. That was, that was their value. And so for Jesus to say, I'm not even ashamed to call you brothers. You can be in the family. If that hits us, it's sweet. But to them, I get to be in the family of God? We just don't think that way because family's not as important to us. In a lot of good ways, our culture came with this thing called individualism, and we all became individualists. A lot of our good, a lot of good came out of that. But when individualism does not have the Holy Spirit pulling on it, it has progressed in the Western world to where we are fiercely individualistic. My my family, my church, my community better tell me nothing about me because I'm in charge of me. And I will do what I want to have whatever fulfillment I have and whatever effect it has on my siblings or my parents, whatever effect it has on my community, you can all get over it because I'm going to do me. That's the attitude of today. In antiquity, we would know nothing of those people because family is everything. One great illustration of this I found was Leonardo da Vinci. He is credited with being the first one who came up with the idea of a resume. The first person to decide, the way I will recommend myself to others is write down all the things I've done. That really didn't catch on until about 120 years ago. People have only been using resumes for about 120 years, where you write down all the stuff you've done, and that's how you recommend yourself to others. The original resume was not writing down your achievements. It was writing down your family. It was genealogy. If you wanted to recommend yourself to someone, you would say, well, this was my dad, this was my mom, this is my granddad, and these are my uncles, and these are my aunts. They have their reputation. You can rec- I can recommend myself to you because of who my family is. We, we recommend now ourselves by our achievements, but most of the world, for most of time, and in the biblical world, recommended ourselves because of the family we were in. Even the kings did this. This is actually kind of comical if you read some of the old Roman emperor uh, and some of the British kings, the French kings, when they're announced... They send out the, uh, they send out the uh, announcement that they've been inaugurated as king, and they never, they never mention the things they've done. They don't say, then this person was prince, and he won this war, or he did this, he did this financial thing for the kingdom. Here's what he's done for the kingdom. They just send out a list of family members. Here's how I know he's king, because he was this son and this son and this son. And what was funny is if you had family members who had done embarrassing things, you just left them out. You don't mention your family members. Like, you might do that when you think, I wouldn't want to give a resume. I'd want to give a genealogy. You probably thought of some family members that you'd go, I'm not putting them in there. I'm, I'm not putting them on the list of the family members who would recommend me. And so I think of that phrase. 
He's not ashamed to call me brother. But brother, you know me. You're not ashamed of me? You put me in your genealogy? You wouldn't leave me off the list? I'd leave me off the list. You can go over to Gospel of Matthew and you can see he doesn't leave us off the list. He's not ashamed of us. And in that list of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, that's how he starts. He tells us where Jesus came from. And on that list is victims of incest, a prostitute, a murderer, another prostitute, an adulterer, a wicked king named Manasseh. And he doesn't leave them off the list. In the same way, he didn't leave them off his genealogy in the Gospel of Mark. He just calls you a brother or sister. Proud to have you in the family, not because of anything you've done. You should be surprised. That he's not ashamed to call you brother or sister. It's only through his work he's not ashamed to call you brother or sister. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that Jesus might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. Let's just highlight two things here. We already saw that there was a line here about him partaking of everything we partake in. It says he had to be made like us, made like our brothers, or made like his brothers, knowing he knows all of our experiences. He knows what family betrayal is like. You remember that story from the Gospels? The family comes to Jesus early in his ministry, and they think Jesus has gone crazy, and they want to they want to bring him back. He knows what friendship betrayal is and what Judas did to him. He knows what it's like to be rejected and lied about and maligned. He knows about loneliness and disappointment and frustration. It says here he even knows our temptations. He went through them all. He conquered them all. In that, he, he knows all of our struggles. He knows how to help us through them. And then I'll almost regretfully go faster through this one. He makes propitiation for the sins of the people. I would just highlight for you last week, as we saw Jesus was better than angels and prophets and priests, and the way that he was better than priests was that finally the work of a forgiveness of sins was done. We saw last week Jesus sits down instead of having to constantly work. So we just see here at the end, we can glory in that he does the work to forgive sins and make us all that one family together. So, in our last 10 minutes or so here, we see Jesus in these three ways. He is king, he is founder, he is brother. And I want to highlight those three for you. I wrote them down this way. I won't stick with it totally. I wrote it, I wrote it down this way if you're writing down notes. We talked about, I want to talk to you about a king for our hard times a founder for our hard temptations, and a brother for hard teaching. But they all kind of melt together. You could just say a king, a founder, and a brother that responds to, helps us in our hard times, hard temptations, and hard teachings. But we'll do them the way I wrote them down. Number one, a king for hard times. There's a story attributed to King Arthur. It's also attributed to a couple Roman, uh, Roman emperors. I don't know who it's true of, or it could just be a legend, and it's not true at all. It's a possibility. But the story goes that there is a king who goes into battle with his, with his men. And at the end of this, this battle, the king gets off his horse. And he, all he has is his weapons and then the robe he, he had to indicate himself as king. This heavy, this very valuable robe that says he's royalty, he's the king. And the story goes, 
he just starts tearing it up, starts slicing it up to tie tourniquets on the men who, who, who are bleeding, to make bandages with his royal robe on their wounds. It's an incredible picture of the king that is, that is pictured here, imaged here in Jesus. We need a king who gets off the horse, that gets off the high place, and comes down to even tear his robe, and in his case, tore his own flesh to go through hard times with us. If that story is even true, it's awesome, but we have something even better. Not just someone who tore his righteous robe, but tore his own flesh and blood for us. So if you you got that kind of king, that's what's imaged here. He comes off the high place to come be with you, to put the tourniquet on when it's hard, so that you might continue to be faithful. I'll give you one more illustration of this. It's a story I've heard lots of preachers give in various texts. There's a story of Kitty Genovese. She was murdered in 1964 in Queens. It's also in a lot of psychology textbooks as a uh, what they call the bystander effect. Bystander effect. Uh, Kitty Genovese was attacked in a, a fairly well-populated part of Queens, and she did it, made a lot of noise. She was screaming for help. She she wanted someone to help her, and in the noise she's making, her assailant runs away. He goes and hides in some um, aisle. Later. Some uh, police reports say there were dozens of lights that came on on that street. There, this is in the middle of the night. Dozens of lights came on. There were no calls to 911. The effect thinking is someone else will call. Someone else will call. And then no one went down. So lights came on. People saw what was going on. They saw the trouble. They saw the hard times. But no one did anything. And so this assailant, he comes back later and he finishes the job. What we need is what Kitty Genovese needs, and it's what we have. She needed someone to not just look at the trouble, but to come out of the high-rise and come help. To come out of the high-rise and do something for this person. And we are not that helpless. We have the good king who tore his robe, came off the horse. We have the good king who came out of the high-rise, came out of glory to come and be with us in our hard times. So number one, we have a king for our hard times. Number two... We have a founder for our hard temptations. We have a founder for our hard temptations. I like this concept of being a a founding father of a new people. It's like when you go from one country to another and you don't don't know their customs. That's really what's, what's true of us. What's true of every Christian around the world. They grow up in one culture. When they become a Christian, they're now a member of a brand new culture. And it is through that identity knowing we have a good founder. He's made a new people. I have a new country. I have a new king. We have new customs. It is in that identity that we can respond to our old temptations. Where I'm from says I should be materialistic. I should gather all the wealth I can and just collect it. But my new country, my new values make me look back on it, look back on that temptation and say, I don't think like that anymore. Where I'm from now, I want to be generous. I want to give away what I can give away. Now, my old country, it had the value where my lust or my looking at pornography was, was a normal thing that we, 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 don't even really, we don't even really condemn anymore. But I'm from a new country, and I look back on those old values, and I go, I, I don't do that anymore. I don't think that way. I'm from a new country. We now respect and regard the, the sanctity of the sexual relationship and the sanctity of human beings. They're not products to consume. I think of my old culture, and it, it just has all of these messed up values about family and money and sexuality my own name and renown i mean young people in here you you live in a culture that says man if you can just get an online presence 
an internet presence. That, that's, that's what you need. But man, you live in a new country if, if you're with Jesus. That online fame and renown is not what we're working for. He's the founder of a new place, and that responds to our hard temptations. Because I know I'm from a new place. I can look back on the old place and go, I'm not from there anymore. I don't want to act like that anymore. I'm in a new place with a new king and a new founder, and I'm going to adopt his values. So we have a king for our hard times. We have a founder for our hard temptations, and we have a brother for hard teachings. I want to end here for two reasons. One, likely next week, if not, it'll be week four. We're going to find this Hebrews writer say that the project of perseverance, the project of sticking with Jesus, is something we're going to have to do with each other. We're going to need each other to exhort one another towards sticking with Jesus. Last week we said, don't drift, pay close attention. If you try to do that alone, you'll probably fail, is what the Hebrews writer is saying later on. And so I want to end here saying that that brother, he's made us a family in part so that we can exhort one another. He can work through us for each other to call us to orthodoxy, to call us to good works, to call us from sin. I also wanted to end here because there's a good illustration for this. Uh, Pastor Doug took some of us through a Bible study here recently about what we call the prodigal son. The, you, you, know, you know that story. We have uh, a younger son who is, is done with his family. He goes to his father, dishonors his father, says, I want my stuff. I don't care what you have to do. Liquidate. Sell what you got to sell. Give me my stuff. I'm going. And then he lives this licentious, evil life, comes to nothing and wants to go back to the father and the father is overjoyed when the son comes back and throws, them, throws him a feast. It's a very big deal. And then there's the older brother. He resents this. How dare you bring him back? You know what he did. He's going to take from me. He's taken away from my estate. Now that he's back in, he's going to get some inheritance? And the, one of the, the payoffs of that, one of the main points of that Bible study we went through for those six weeks, is that what should have happened but the, the right thing to have happened was that when the younger brother left, the older brother would go get him. That he would go to his brother in all of his licentious lifestyle and call him back. Come back home. And instead, this elder brother resented him. And that's the kind of big brother we have in Jesus. Now, I, I know I've got an, I got an excellent big brother. I know if I strayed, he'd call me back, and that's mutual. But if you don't have one of those, you, you don't have those in the physical world, you have one of those in the spiritual world, and he will work through us in this room to call you back from sin, to call you back into fellowship. That when you are straying, it'll be through us that the ultimate big brother says to these siblings here, to brothers and sisters, stay on track. Don't drift. Play, pay close attention. It will be through each other that we stay faithful. It'll be that kind of family. I could end there, but I just want to take one more minute to say one more thing. Those are awesome truths, and I want you to hear those indicatives, indicating who you are. You are the subject of a king who's with you in hard times. You are the citizen of of a country whose founder has brand new values that you can follow after. You are the sibling of a brother whose father is God, and he's welcomed you in. We could end there, and that's awesome. But I do want you to go do something with it. Coming back to that Psalm 8 point. We've been given that king, that founder, that brother. There is a world that desperately needs it. 
So let's go on that project together of cultivating and nurturing and taking dominion wherever God put you, wherever you were, in your household, in your marriage, wherever you are, in school when it starts up in a month and a half, wherever you are, you do your part to bring the king's word, the founder's word, the brother's invitation to the world around you so that we can invite more in to this good kingdom, this good country, this good family that Jesus has formed. Let me pray for us, and as the band comes up, we'll sing together.